Hello and welcome to Suite 212, putting the arts in their social, cultural, political and historical context here on Resonance 104.4 FM, still London's best and brightest radio station after more than two decades on the air. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and today I'm sad to say that I'm introducing the final episode of Suite 212 for reasons that we'll get into shortly uh, in a show looking at the state of politics, culture and criticism in the United Kingdom in the 2020s. So joining me today are two guests who will be familiar to regular Sweet 212 listeners, uh, both writers, critics, editors who've appeared on the programme several times before. Fatim Ahmed was on the very first episode of Sweet 212 back in July 2017, and today we'll be returning to some of the themes we covered then. Fatima is the acting editor of Apollo magazine and has written for many publications, including Prospect, The New Humanist and The London Review of Books. Owen Hatherley appeared with Fatima on our episode about George Orwell in 2019, as well as our shows on the Russian Revolution, Marky e. Smith and the Greater London Council, and on one of the Sweet 212 sessions that we did online during the first COVID-19 lockdown in spring 2020, and this makes him our most frequent guest. Owen is the author of numerous books, most recently an anthology called Clean Living Under Difficult Circumstances, and you can tune into the London Review of Books podcast if you want to hear Owen and me discussing that. Uh, Owen is also the culture editor of Tribune magazine, uh, which is something we will also come back to. So Fatima, Owen, welcome to Sweet 212. Hello. <laughs> yeah, good to, uh, good to have you both back, uh, albeit under the uh, slightly sad circumstances of, of stopping the show. Um, there are numerous reasons for this, and I think some of them will be uh, interesting to explore, and hopefully we can do it without being too self-indulgent. Please don't worry, listeners, that's not a cue for a clip show or, you know, a sort of top 10 episodes of Sweet 212 or anything like that, but uh, more some of the cultural and political context and some of the issues around funding. Um, I think that's quite a good idea. I'm sorry. I think of it. Show, let, yeah. Play little snippets of Sweet Two and Two and go. Oh, what were we thinking? <laughs> hilarious, <laughs> hilarious outtakes. I mean, sadly, the exactly. only outtake, the only outtake we we had. Oh, your me, poem. Me well. trying to read Robert Conquest's <laughs> exactly. poem about George Orwell. <laughs> yeah, which I think I think took six goes to get through. Both <laughs> both of you had to leave the room. <laughs> but sadly I don't actually have the recording of that anymore it was uh, lost in tragic, the uh, resonance, resonance cutting room so, it'll be yeah. right on the night never knew what they had no well absolutely um I think a lot of people never knew what they had which is one reason why the show is stopping <laughs> 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 um yeah I mean you know I mean ultimately it, it comes down to issues around funding but I'll come back to that in a bit I mean, to give a bit of context, and, and some of you will, will know this, I, I started the show in uh, summer uh, 2017 after the uh, election. I'd long wanted to do a show on resonance, on something around the arts. Originally, my idea was to do something called Writers on Writing uh, and just do sort of hour-long interviews with writers about their processes, which wouldn't necessarily be a sort of politicised uh, art show. But there was something about the energy unleashed in the um, the 2017 campaigns of Jeremy Corbyn's insistence that everyone was capable of making art, his use of, of Shelley's poetry in the campaign, uh, the simplified rhetoric he gave uh, on the campaign trail, um, particularly at the Prenton Park Football Stadium in Birkenhead, uh, introducing a Libertines gig 
where he talked about people coming together in that brilliant cultural tradition we have, working class communities that build football clubs, working class youngsters that play music, and a government that cares about sport, culture and the arts and gives you the place to, gives you the space to play and rehearse your, your music. Um, you know, I, I found this really, really kind of inspiring. I, I, you know, I think it's especially, but not only working class communities that have really lost these spaces to kind of create and to distribute things that they make. Um, but, you know, I, I felt uh, sort of a lot of the Corbyn project was was geared around, uh, you know, reviving uh, this sort of spirit of cultural democracy and those sorts of opportunities. And it was that spirit of, of cultural democracy that fired the show, but also wanting to counter uh, the kind of pundits who came out and said things like, don't encourage them, Jeremy, in the wake of speeches like that. Um, you know, I thought that was a pretty kind of spiteful response really and so wanted to um wanted to make something that i hoped would be would be more kind of generous um so you fast forward uh what four and a half years now since that election which is a pretty incredible thought in itself um and we've been doing the show on and off but mostly on uh since then um so, so to some extent, it's just a matter of, of having said a lot of what I wanted to say in, in this format. And Tom Overton and Lara Alonso Perona, who have um, in the past been co-hosts of the show, have actually both left London. Indeed, uh, Tom, Tom has a young son now. So congratulations, Tom. And we're still looking forward to your, uh, your book on John Berger. And maybe we will um, we'll do a one-off uh, show when that comes out. Um, so it's partly just issues around uh, around having things to say and, and people to say them. Uh, and the loss of the resident studio during the pandemic has made the recording of this uh, more stressful and less fun in a lot of ways. Um, but there's also, of course, um, significant changes to the cultural and political context that followed the um, you know, heavy defeat of, of Corbyn's Labour in 2019. Um, and, you know, the, um, the arrival of a sort of slightly different type of conservative government, I think, uh, one that has put sort of culture war, quote unquote, at the, you know, close to the centre of its strategy of, of governance and particularly its sort of media policy. Uh, and of course, the um, arrival of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic and the very significant impact that's had on the arts. Um, None of us want to talk about the Labour Party very much, um, now or any other time. Um, but I mean, I wondered if we could just sort of quickly sort of launch into the discussion by maybe just sort of dispatching with them first. Um, the, the 2019 manifesto uh, for the Labour Party and the election had a plan for a, for a billion pound cultural capital fund for 170 million pounds a year in arts pupil premiums for primary school children. National Education Service, a pledge to abolish tuition fees, uh, and do some other things that I think would have been beneficial to creative people like um, addressing the casualization of the workforce and keeping freedom of movement, democratizing the media to some extent, and trying to deal with the, uh, the housing crisis, which has you know, really priced a lot of creative artists uh, out of Britain's major cities. Um, so, I mean, how much of that do we think that the Labour Party are likely to keep under the uh, the new administration 
Um, I've, I've certainly heard very little about their arts policies over the last sort of 18 months or so. Okay. So, yeah. um, um. <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll have a go at answering that. I, I, I mean, I don't know who the who the shadow culture secretary is. Me neither. And I am the culture editor of a magazine that is at least nominally Labour Party affiliated. So if anyone should know, it's me, and I don't. And I don't think this is entirely because I've muted anything to do with Labour Party on Twitter. I think it's also to do with the fact they don't really have much for policy. And actually, they didn't have that much for policy in the years when the left was in control, insofar as the actual culture brief was given to that that guy, you know, that Denge guy. Um, so I think we do have to name him as Tom Watson. We do have to name him as Tom sure. Watson. Um, so, like, kind of actually with with uh, with with architecture and urbanism and housing, a lot of the policies actually came from other parts of the party. Um, and were not really official cultural policies anyway, of which they were very, almost nil. Um, in the same way as anything kind of interesting on housing didn't come from, you know, the, the then shadow housing secretary, John Healy. Um, so in a way, this is a bit of a shame because actually, you know, kind of high new labor, let's say, was culturally quite interesting. And it had, um, you know, we kind of live in its consequences, but it had a cultural policy that was very, very worked out. And particularly in the kind of area of things that I work on most on architecture, it was extremely well worked out. And this is obviously on my mind because, you know, Richard Rogers died today. So it's kind of like, and he kind of embodied that and embodied those contradictions in many ways. Um, and I think it had quite a lot, there were positive things about it, which were usually pushing against the sort of small c conservatism of a lot of the new left respect to architecture um you know there, there was a lot of real and we kind of forget about it now and everyone's been forgiven but in many ways the new left of the 70s and 80s and prince charles on architecture were in more or less the same place um you know and and now things like the new architecture movement and, and so forth are kind of being looked at again and that's kind of all very well, but most of it was, you know, making a house that looks like a house was the, the, the extent of the ambition. Um, if you look at something like the People's Plan for the Royal Docks, which we talked about in the GLC episode, it's, it's a wonderful document in all sorts of ways. But every single remark on architecture and urbanism is based on like, why can't the Royal Docks look more like Essex? Why can't we all have detached houses? Why do we have to have flats? Middle class people don't live in flats, which is also not true and was not even true then. Um, but you know the, this this kind of like I, I suppose communitarian is what what how one would probably describe it, based very much on this idea of like you ask people what they want and then they tell you what you want and you give them what you want, what they want. And so that particular case, it was architecture was people want houses with gardens with a pitched roof made of brick, so that's what we're going to give them, and that's where it ended. That's where it began and that's where it ended. So any idea that architecture could you know, kind of give you a new sense of space or the city or material or form or anything like that was absolutely thrown out of the window. Um, you know, if you go, I went to the, the Barbican's recent exhibition on, on the Matrix Design Group, who were very much part of that kind of community architecture, new architecture movement kind of uh, thing in the 70s and 80s. And socially and politically, it's incredibly interesting. And architecturally, it's dull as hell. 
they had you know there, there's there's no real architecture there in a way and, and you know it's all about kind of um processes and tools of helping people to democratize their everyday lives which is obviously a good thing but the idea that they as architects should in some way help people that don't get to experience architecture to experience architecture and to have architecture is really not seen as part of what they would do because that would then kind of perpetuate a sort of division of labor that they were against and that you know in in the 90s actually that sort of moment comes in of <clears throat> a load of these people either were italian like rogers or had been to italy to go usually to go and see you know actually quite often communist administrations in italy and work out how they worked you know they'd been to barcelona they'd been to rotterdam been to west berlin and were very much kind of like wow why don't we have this you know why is it that they have these cities where they get to hang out in bars outside in squares and see all these wonderful new buildings um, that are really exciting and futuristic and you know, at the, the level of our ambition is to basically like endlessly recreate Edgebaston. Like, you know, and, 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 and um, that fed into both the kind of the measure of new labour through people like John Prescott and fed into, I guess, what, you know, whatever one say about him now. I think Ken Livingston at the time kind of was, as mayor, was kind of the new labour left wing. Um, you know, he kind of followed that kind of policy um, of sort of trying to do social democracy via neoliberal means, basically, um, much more successfully than the actual official government did. And you can also see that in the way, you know, as, as Culture Minister Chris Smith related to culture more widely. And it also, it had an effect of blunting the opposition to New Labour's authoritarianism and, and it's neoliberalism with a generation of, of, of artists and filmmakers in particular, because it was their boys, you know, they, they, they'd gone from this kind of like moment of just seeing, as we see now, these people that are utterly Neanderthal, um, you know, like, 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 you know, these people like kind of Nadine Dorries or Liz Truss, you know, the, the Oliver Dowden or whoever, these people whose, who, whose cultural horizon is, despite the fact they frequently got very expensive educations, um, whose cultural you know, horizon is the lowest possible common denominator and who, you know, in the 80s were involved in the culture war on, on sexuality, on race. Um, and then suddenly you had these guys that basically agreed with you and they were the guys you'd been to the parties with. They the guys that liked your films. Um, they would go to your art exhibition. Many of them were gay. You know, um, and, you know, the fact that Chris Smith was out after Section 28, you know, was a huge thing. Um, and so on the one hand, uh, you know, it led to this kind of much more free attitude towards culture, but it also disarmed a lot of middle-class radicals who was just like, right, I'm extra in power now. And all of those middle-class radicals, because they owned urban property, did very, very well out of what then happened. But I guess for them, there was this kind of, um, tripartite system, let's say, of kind of culture, which could consist of, you know, a new building that's a center for this and that, um, 
you know, encouraging artists to move to areas, which just got accelerated over that new labour period, you know, from a thing that was happening organically in places like Hackney to a thing that was literally programmed in, you know, if you're going to gentrify a housing estate, you first literally move in artists, um, as happened at Balfour Tower. Um, uh, you have that and you have universities, which obviously had huge quantities of new investment and expansion at the same time as them being more marketized. And then along with that, you had the kind of the, the, the sort of property and finance industry. And these three things, that was the kind of new labor cultural settlement. The new labor was seen in saw culture as a thing that it was very, very interested in, very, very excited by, but as a thing that, that, that would serve a very, very real economic role. And in a way, you know, the, 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 the Tories are sort of currently sort of cutting off the nose to spite their face a bit on this stuff because, you know, it was always a big source of export income. Like, you know, basically, you know, Britain is a country which is very good at culture industries, banking, arms dealing and pharmaceuticals, and that's about it. And they basically declared war on two of those things, mm. um, which is, in a way weird for a capitalist government to be doing, um, but it's very much about the particular kind of um, political coalition that they've built. And the current Labour Party currently, I think, are spooked by that coalition because it, part of it involves people that they think used to vote for them. Whether we agree with that or not, that's what they think. Um, so they are loath to build a new coalition that would, in, that, that, that would create some sort of political or social or even cultural thing that would unify their existing coalition. And so instead they're just desperate basically not to be seen as being, as being woke, to be seen as being uh, contending in any way in, 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 a, in any sort of cultural war, except often on the other side. Mm. So I mean, that's obviously why they've downplayed it so much. Um, but I guess they have in their DNA a more interesting attitude to culture than your average Tory, but it's also an attitude to culture that's been the direct reason why a lot of cultural workers can no longer afford to live in lots of British cities. Mm. Perhaps just to pick up on um, Owen's point about that, that the cultural settlement of the last Labour government um, and only focusing on the economic is that they were desperate never to speak about the values um, or the intrinsic value of culture, the value of culture to, a, to, a, to an individual. That's one of the things that I think was much mocked um, under the last most recent um, Labour leadership. Um, but what's so interesting about, I'm going to talk about museums for a bit, it's interesting to think about museums because the Free, national, free admission to national museums was an enormous achievement. Um, local authorities also put, were able to put money into, into museums as well. And I think one of the things we sort of forget is just how decimated um, local, local authority run museums have been. They've either been forced to um, you know, go into sort of private partnerships or just to kind of mothball these collections, which were left to them under you know, different, different civic administrations. But it's interesting the amount of trouble this the current government is going to to you know stack museum boards. It's you know I think one question is you know why are they bothering? And on some level they they've taken the rhetoric that museums came to sort of build up and art galleries um, came to sort of adopt and you 
you know, I, I, I must admit, I think some of it, you know, was in practice did not live up to the, to the rhetoric, but that sort of the way that certain national museums have spoken about themselves as, you know, liberal, plural places, you know, committed to certain so, you know, social values. And in a way, the Conservative government is sort of calling, calling their bluff by actually taking this seriously. Um, you know, why, why does it matter who, you know, trustees? Um, so I suppose a bit of background on this is that at the moment, um, basically you have to, the Department of Co Digital Culture, Media and Sport, as it, as it now is, is, is looking very seriously at every sort of uh, trustee that comes up for renewal. And so some people have stood down, some people um, have been rejected. Um, even prominent conservative donors like the um, chair of um, the Royal Museum's Greenwich have resigned because they think this is just too much. Um, so I think it's, I just think it's interesting to bear in mind that one side of the culture war is actually taking this quite seriously. Mm. But as Owen says, you know, um, the people in charge of this, I mean, are their interest in culture. They have no curiosity in it, in it, um, for its own sake, it's purely instrumental. And as for the war side, I mean, you know, it's mainly a bunch of people who fantasize about what they'd have done in an air raid and think they'd have come out of it well. But I, I just think it's it's worth bearing in mind that someone is taking this quite seriously, but why are they mm. bothering? Yeah, I mean, I'd like to come on there to talk a bit about sort of um, the Tory, the current Conservative government um, and its sort of policies, particularly around mm. arts universities. Uh, we actually did, an online-only episode on this at the very start of the pandemic. So I would encourage um, listeners to, to go to soundcloud.com slash suite dash 212 and maybe have a listen to that as well. Um, but in 2021, the Education Secretary Gavin Williamson said that the arts were not among the government's strategic priorities. Um, and there have been government proposals to cut uh, funding to arts education by up to 50%. Uh, and this is uh, obviously something that's uh, playing into the latest round of university college union strikes. All the art schools have have been on strike again at the beginning of uh, of this term. Uh, and you know, this is sort of it's a means of censorship by stealth, right? I mean, you know, um, tuition fee debt has long been used to discourage people from studying the arts. And I think one of the things this Conservative government have done is make that explicit, and they say it very explicitly. And of course, it ties in with the huge triple fold uh, rise in tuition fees um, under the, the coalition government uh, in 2010. Um, so I think that's, that's important as well. And it sort of strikes me that there is, there is an overall policy of making it as difficult as possible for people to make art and of really kind of engineering the types of socioeconomic backgrounds that you need to get into the arts. Um, you know, leading to a further gentrification of the arts on top of what we've seen over the last 10 or 20 years. I mean, I think the second point you just made is crucial. It's who gets to who gets to make art. And then if we broaden it out, who gets to study art subjects and at which universities? Um, th that's obviously there's a feeling that there are too there are too many people out there doing it and some of them are the wrong sort. Fine art has always been dominated by the, the, the already affluent. And so I suppose the thing that was interesting in that regard 
um, was actually music. And music is, you know, pop music is always, is actually one of the central things in that kind of new labour cultural settlement. And they were very much aware of its importance. Um, and obviously, you know, that's usually seen in the kind of much mocked, correctly mocked kind of Core Britannia stuff. But it was also a kind of recognition of the, of the blindingly obvious fact that it had been a huge success in the previous, like, 40 years, you know, that, that, that a country which was sort of globally second rate in most other respects was first rate in pop music. Um, and obviously, you know, the degree to which everyone in it was working class is, 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 is mythologized, but certainly, a, a, you know, probably a majority of everyone's favorite pop stars were from working class or low middle class backgrounds. Um, and that that's one of the things that really seemed to, 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 to change in, in the last 10 years in particular, sort of austerity onwards. Um, and it's also a thing that was always weirdly, even though New Labour were aware of it, they didn't know how to kind of like in integrate it into their, into their kind of like, have a big new building and some luxury flats model. Like one of the things that, that I remember in, in, in the early years of austerity, probably about 2011, 2012, that really, really stuck in my head was going to the big new shiny art centre on the on the waterfront in Newport in South Wales. And they'd invited a load of local kind of culture people involved, you know, who were involved in, in a city which is always kind of town rather, which is always kind of punched above its weight, um, culturally and particularly musically. And the main thing they kept asking was like, why won't you reopen TJ's? And TJ's was the, um, you know the 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 rock venue. It was a a, a, a pub that 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 you know that where bands played and where you know famously Nirvana played and the Manics played and blah 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 blah. And um, the idea that you would rather than you know a new sort of waterfront centre for arts and whatnot um, that you would rather than that you would see an existing bit of cultural re infrastructure and throw some money at it. That's not necessarily a thing they would do because it's not glamorous, it's not interesting, it's not, no one's going to kind of move, you're not going to build a load of new flats somewhere because of TJ's, you know, you know what I mean? It wasn't part of the, of that, that you couldn't connect it to property development, you couldn't connect it to universities in the same way as you could the kind of new centre for, 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 for something or other. Um, so it was always a bit of a blind spot. And so now you have the situation where there was a wonderful article by, I can't remember, the guy. Uh, it's someone that you know, I think, Julia, Ed something. Ed Gillett? Yeah, I think so. Ed Gillett, yeah. Ed, Ed, Ed Gillett wrote this fantastic piece about, um, I can't remember the, the group's name, but they were kind of like a little sort of troop of techno DJs who lived mm. in South London, um, who were, they, were, they weren't middle class, they were upper class. They were people who, you know, were, you know, educated at Swiss public schools and, you know, had like enough wealth to like buy a few islands, you know, um, who were like buying up large chunks of Brixton. Uh, you know, uh, uh, and that kind of idea of like, you know, techno TJ by night, property developer by day, building a tower named after yourself, which this guy is trying to do next to Brixton Market to build a tower called Taylor Tower because he's called Taylor. This is the sort of stuff which really is really morbid symptoms, mm. you know, like, like, that that that's something where you know forms of music that have emerged out of kind of often semi-clandestine working class spaces, um, then ending up as this thing where it's just literally a playground for aristocrats. Yeah, is really extraordinary. 
Um, and in a way, you know, I mean, in, in art, basically, unless someone tells me otherwise, I always assume that most people have been expensively educated. Mm. Um, you're bright, bright more often than not. Um, but in music, that's not been the case. And, and now it kind of is. Yeah, um, I think that's a good place to move the uh, conversation on slightly, actually, to talking about a bit more about the current state of British cultural criticism in that context uh, and some of the problems that have beset this programme. You know, it's difficult to do an explicitly political uh, arts programme. Um, I don't think it's impossible. Uh, I mean, we have managed to do it uh, for the last few years, and I think our politics come across more in the choice of subjects and guests that we cover rather than um, anything uh, too too explicit. Um, and, you know, it's intended as a counter to um, maybe broadcast coverage that I think is implicitly conservative in focusing on um, more established kind of cultural figures and better known cultural movements maybe. And, you know, the feeling that I have that anything that doesn't take up a position is sort of implicitly at least small c conservative and so you know that the, that's not a problem in itself but I think it's what makes you a target um for you know sort of bad faith use of uh of rules around uh neutrality um you know one of the sort of difficulties there is uh you know Ofcom uh who regulate broadcast media uh, talk about the need for due impartiality on matters of political or industrial controversy, um, which of course makes it forbidden to sort of take a side on on strikes or elections or or really on cultural policy. Um, but a problem we have, I think, is that in order to have a balanced uh, discussion um, of um, of a lot of cultural policy, uh, we would need to obviously have people from um, all of the major parties on and would they even want to come on the show would they even be aware of the show can you even reach them um, you know people in politics are not easy to get hold of even um, so I think that's that's a problem for for us as well um, and you sort of combine that with uh, with online copyright issues that make it difficult for us to do a show like this uh, on, on YouTube which of course is not Ofcom regulated, uh, but it would be very, very hard for us to say do a film review show uh, because of the sort of prohibitive sort of costs and processes of um, of acquiring sort of material to bring a visual element to to what we do. So I think there are a lot of challenges um, just legally, and I think one of the things that that does actually uh, is impose a kind of debate form on a lot of cultural coverage. Um, so you get a sort of hom homogeneity of the form as, as well as as well as content. Um, so those were some sort of provocations I wanted to bring in there about that. And um, Fatima, I think you had some um, some thoughts on this that I'd like to explore further. Well, perhaps not the legal side or the or the balance, but I think it's you know how do you, how do you fund curiosity? Um, what you've spoken about is sort of cultural conservatism. Um, I think that's true, but I think that's also true that the level of curiosity in the publications or broadcast sort of programmes that we that are thought of as mainstream that we all have access to is possibly less than it was. Although I don't I don't really buy into sort of, you know, that, that there was a golden age. I'm not sure, you know, even when Channel 4 was 
you know, public um, broadcasting really interesting things. If you talk to someone like John Acompra, he's, you know, he's quite clear that, you know, he was put on at midnight and they and they still had to really fight the commissioners to get what they wanted um, on air. So I, I think a kind of story of decline isn't that useful, but it's sort of, you know, how have people managed to get things that are interesting on? But I think now we have a quite, it's been a long running crisis of who can afford to publish criticism or interesting work and who can afford to do it. Um, they, and they're not actually always the same problem because there are places that can afford to do it that aren't necessarily paying people to do it to the extent that they might. Um, I mean, I think the important thing is that, you know, things which work on a subscription model are, you know, subscribers, whether that's people paying or having to pay the, the license fee or subscribers to a magazine are what give you independence or should give you independence. Advertising is a more difficult model. Um, and we can see in the case of just say book coverage in national newspapers. I mean, in the old, you know, when, when it was just print, the art section didn't 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 have any didn't have really bring advertising. Publishers never never advertised in book sections, or when they did, it really wasn't enough money that it made up for you know watches. Um, so and we're just sort of seeing that playing out in kind of terms of you know have you I can't I can't recall seeing any sort of digital advertising accompanying sort of book stuff online that, that's meaningful so you know I think and you know how does an independent radio station you know fund itself perhaps you didn't uh well it's the arts council yeah. um which has been a, a sort of you know it's it's an issue I think about a lot because I really sweet to one two should have done a show on the arts council at some point and and we did um and yes, partly because I didn't get round to it. I didn't know who a good guest would be. Um, but Richard Witts, who uh, was the uh, lead singer of uh, the great post-punk band, The Passage, um, and later became a sort of, um, later became an academic. And he published a history of the Arts Council, I think in 1997, called Artist Unknown. And the cover of this went viral uh, on Twitter a few years ago. Uh, and we can't repeat it verbatim on air because of Ofcom regulations, but it has a sort of quite crude uh, stick drawing of an artist drawing a man in glasses with a, uh, a very derogatory term for him, which he still has a couple of letters to print. And then a man in glasses at the door and the artist turning around him and saying, can I have a grant so I can finish my art? Um, which is, is, is a perfect description of the quandary here, really. Um, you know, I, I tried a subscription model for, for Suite 212 and was really never able to make the show sustainable. I mean, to some extent, we we're unlucky with the, the pandemic, which sort of meant that um, my, my plan to sort of offer extra content to Patreon subscribers from doing live events and recording them. Um, you know, everything obviously ended up moving online. It became difficult to, to have kind of exclusivity of that kind of content. Um, you know, lots of people, especially in the arts, are very worried about their income and cancelled their subscriptions or didn't subscribe. Uh, and then, of course, these things became self-perpetuating problems. Uh, and really, just even one show a month ended up not being uh, sustainable, which, which is a shame. Um, but, you know, Arts Council funding for a show like this never really felt um, plausible to me either, even if, you know, I'm perfectly happy to broadcast on a on a channel that is uh, is funded partly by by the arts council and partly by um, regular um, funding funding drives, um, 
so yeah, I mean, you know, Resonance does manage to survive and does manage to keep producing, um, you know, really, really interesting and really stimulating radio, but it's really not easy. Um, and, you know, it's, I think, it is indicative, as we sort of said, of, you know, a sort of decline of the counterculture more generally in the sort of political circumstances that we were talking about earlier. Um, and, you know, this is manifested in a relative absence of, of artists and writers and filmmakers from, from mainstream television over the last sort of 20 years or so, uh, and the lack of platforms for, for new figures to show work and discuss ideas. I mean, there's a sense that this might be rectified to some extent by some quite interesting uh, recent changes to BBC Radio's cultural coverage. Um, so as well as extending their kind of flagship art show, Front Row, uh, to I think 45 minutes, uh, they're also doing um, a new music programme called Add to Playlist um, with Keris Matthews and Jeffrey Burke here, um, and a show called This Cultural Life, which is featuring in-depth discussions with, they say, some of the world's leading artists and creatives uh, you know, in a similar way that I've often done on, on this show. Um, so I don't know, like, is there some tentative cause for optimism anywhere there? I mean, I, I, I suppose the difficult thing for those of us of, 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 a, of a certain age and those of us above that certain age, and this is sort of trying to bear in mind Fatima's point about uh, about sort of nostalgia for uh, golden ages is that we kind of have to accept or are being forced to accept the fact that the places where we expected to find culture be introduced to culture no longer can do that or are able to do that. We are pretty much sure that tuning into Channel 4 or BBC 2 or BBC 4 for that matter or picking up the Guardian, or picking up the Times, or picking up the New Statesman, um, you are not going to get anything of any particular cultural interest. Um, there are, you know, now and then you'll get something interesting, but you know, one 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 swallow doesn't make a summer, you know, and that that's, and and we'd like to imagine that it could be different, and you know, in the moment in which we you know, had, you know, sort of people in politics who were likely to in some way listen to us or at least who we feel represented us in some way, we could sort of dream of it being being sort of legislated back into existence, but it's not that. Um, but you, within that, there's a, actually an enormous ease in finding, you know, like, like TV is a, is a great example of this. Like, uh, you know, I, I, I was almost never, unless there's a particular thing where someone I know has said, there is this good thing on Channel 4 or the BBC. I would never listen, watch Channel 4 or the BBC. Um, and, you know, growing up in the 90s, uh, everything would come via, any, anything television would come via those two things. Even ITV now and again. Um, and now it will invariably come from YouTube, where basically every arts institution has a channel. And sometimes that channel is very good, and sometimes that channel is a bit of a mess. But you know, everywhere has one. Um, and you know, even if you have a, if you have a TV connection, you can even pretend you're actually watching telly, um, rather than just staring at your laptop and continuing checking social media while you're doing so. Um, so, in terms of actually finding things and finding um, 
programs to watch, basically. It's actually, I don't think it's necessarily better or worse. Um, there's, it's just the way that it's consumed and the way that it's distributed is very, very different. And in, and in some ways quite limiting. Mm. Um, you know, the, 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 the um, and everyone always bangs on about this, uh, you know, perhaps slightly unfairly, but I think it's, it, it, it's true that, 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 that a, a sort of streaming, not in terms of, um, you know, the technology, but streaming in terms of the way the schools are streamed into, into different groups of ability has, has, has taken place. Um, so the idea that you could, you know, at the kind of high end of things, stumble upon a Dennis Potter play, or at the low end of things, on top of the pop, stumble upon, you know, a performance that's really weird and interesting, you know, after the one by Des O'Connor, um, that, 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 that ceased, that has ceased. Um, and YouTube algorithms sort of try to kind of recreate something a bit like that by the fact that, like, if they notice you've been watching lots of politics videos, it would be like, you have been, and we see that you've been watching Navarra. You may also be interested in Jordan Peterson. And it's like, well, no, but, you know, I, I, I presume that happens the other way around, that, you know, you watch um, Jordan Peterson or one of those weird little incel fascists that do, you know, that do videos about the, 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 the Persian Wars, um, that, that those, you watch one of those and then it tells you to then go and watch a ContraPoints video. I don't know. Um, but that, you know, that, that, that there's, but nonetheless, you're by and large given what you already want. Um, and that sense of stumbling upon a sort of, you know, Mark Fish was banging on about this like 12 years ago, so it's not new, it's just, it's just continued and it's accelerated. That process of stumbling upon is, is very much over. Or if you do stumble upon it, you'll do it, I think, in a different way. It'll be, you know, kind of, um, things that friends have put on your social network or you know it'll be, it'll be something like that it'll be uh, rather than scheduling i i think that's that's true and i'll just say i mean these are both minority channels but you know i i still think the bbc gets i mean julia you spoke about um radio four which i i must admit i've not listened to seriously since 2010 um and I, I had a I had a year in living somewhere else, and I came back and could no longer listen to the Today program, um, which I think was quite good a, a good move then. But I would say you know, Radio Three and the World Service are outstandingly good, and perhaps they're only allowed to be so because they're regarded as minority channels that not very many people are listening to. But and, and the way Radio Three has, I don't think it ever. It, I don't think I've ever heard the word diversity spoken on it but the way it's diversified what it plays and who it plays both within the classical canon and kind of you know moving up to the kind of music you might hear at you know Cafe Oto in Dalston um it's sort of extraordinary and it's done it with such ease it sort of shows you what's you know I think lots of people you can find places where good work is being done but you know you have to you have to it's either something you already know about or you know you're in a much narrower channel mm. work. and is that is that because of a decline of um of critical culture <coughs> i don't yeah. know really but i think if you sort of think how programs are made i mean we're talking about big scale public sector broadcasting but you know you would once have had everyone would have been on staff you know you had 
you know, pe- people were fairly unsackable. People weren't on short, short-term contracts. You're not having to pitch every single project. You know, that's a, that's a different culture of program making. But I, I confess, I don't know enough about it to, you know, speak about it much length. Well, maybe this is. Um, we've got about fifteen minutes left, so maybe this is a good place to to sort of move on uh, to the final section of the show, where we try and think a bit about, you know what might change for the better and, and maybe what we could do for it and what we might want sort of, you know, British sort of cultural criticism, institutions, policy to to look like. And, you know, I'm not suggesting that we are now in this quarter for an hour going to uh, even come close to fixing any of those things. Oh, I, I thought you were going to solve it today. I thought that's what it was for. Yeah. I did put that in the agenda uh, at the end, solve all of these issues. Sex culture. There's five minutes for that at the end of the show, so uh, we'll spend ten minutes on the problems and five. But before you unveil your new show on GB News, we'll cry. Yeah. fixes culture. Um, yeah, me and uh, <laughs> me and Darren Grimes. Um, yeah, so you know, I mean, things at the moment are not looking great. I mean, the National Campaign for the Arts uh, Arts Index Survey uh, talked about how public funding for the arts per head of population had fallen 35% between 2008 and 2018. And that's before the impact of, uh, of the COVID pandemic and huge cuts to arts institutions that, that followed there, uh, Tate, Tate Enterprises and elsewhere. Uh, business sponsorship of the arts also down a lot, uh, 39% since 2013. They, the National Campaign for the Arts said the same survey. Um, so you know all of that and everything we've we've said beforehand has sort of you know suggested that that things aren't easy but i think you know we all know and are familiar with the fact that you know there is a very interesting uk circle of politically engaged critics uh and you know artists writers filmmakers musicians etc who are also interested in and perhaps involved with criticism and you know owen and i know this because we've you know worked with them or talked to them or Commission them with with Tribune and and Sweet Two One Two and you know Fatima. I know you're you're familiar with a lot of interesting cultural critics as well. So you know the resources are there in terms of interesting and engaged people. I think, um, but is is there a political project for us to play into now in order to you know achieve some of these cultural goals? Okay, I can. <laughs> I, I, I'll have a go going first. So yeah. I suppose. In the last year, year and a half, there are times when I go somewhere and I feel maybe we'll be all right, and times where I go somewhere and I think we absolutely do. And both of them are in South London. And when I, one of them, the place where I go and I feel we are in big trouble is the South Bank. Um, You know, there you have, uh, you know, the kind of, you know, apologies to non-Londoners, but you know, you have the kind of the major collection of cultural buildings in the country. You know, you, uh, 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 you have that kind of the interconnected ensemble of the Royal Festival Hall and the South Bank Centre and the National Theatre and the Riverside Promenade in front of it. And after, there was a kind of brief moment actually during kind of like the first lockdown where you'd kind of go there. Um, kind of at the end of it, I suppose, when I, when I did go there when I was allowed out of the house. And um, it felt briefly as if, you know, there was a sort of, ah, nature is healing feeling about it, because 
two of the groups of people that used to go there, which was um, old people going to see Bergman films and skateboarders were there, but none of the tourists were. Um, and you would see people just hanging out with a can of beer on the South Bank. Um, you know, they weren't, they weren't participating in, you know, in anything that was in any way monetized. I remember like literally just seeing a group dancing around to music from a little stereo. And I was always sort of looking around to see what the flash mob was, looking around to see what the sponsorship was. And there was no such thing. It was just like people had recognized us as their space and they had taken it. Um, and they were involved in broadly speaking cultural activities um, in a very kind of spontaneous way. And if you go there now, or if you've gone there for the last six months, all of the things that made it so depressing to visit for lots of the 2010s are back on and, you know, absolutely in force. In front of the, the you know, the, the, the Royal Festival Hall is a row of private geodesic domes for you to go in and have dinner with one other person. You know, the entire kind of river frontage is just full of like this kind of like weird combination of like Archigram and a German market in Worcester. Um, you know, just like um, every single sort of space is again kind of sponsored and monetized and Actually, but, but because of the kind of, you know, restrictions on, on sort of social distancing and the fact that all of these institutions have their funding severely damaged, uh, means that actually kind of like the things that one used to enjoy about those things, like getting into the festival hall through any of its like 20 entrances, have all gone. Mm. Um, there are about two entrances into the festival hall now, and there are some days when you go there and you can't get into it at all because there's a private party happening there, which actually happened, I, I, I saw to my amazement about a month ago, I was just... I'd never seen anything like that before. The whole Royal Festival Hall was closed for a private ITV party instead. Um, and, you know, the this, this similar thing is happening to, 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 to all of those buildings, that, that anything that's kind of free and public about them is being erased and replaced with this kind of really quite neurotic, kind of like, you know, it's really nerve-jangling kind of corporate landscape where, like, you know, you, on your way to your cultural activity, you may want to, um, you know, take part in some, you know, private gin tasting in your own geodesic dome. And uh, given, you know, that these institutions are having, you know, are having everything from their money to their boards kind of like put under attack by, by central government, I expect that to get worse before it gets better. Mm. In the same way as I kind of, you know, I think what's clearly about to happen to London Transport, you know, that mm. they are very consciously dragging all these things back to the 80s and 90s. Um, but going along with that, perhaps, is some of the other things that happened in the 80s and 90s before New Labour appeared, kind of like throwing, throwing money at culture in all directions, which is a lot more sort of spontaneous activity. So, you know, if I go somewhere like Books Peckham, that's a space that simply wouldn't have existed in the 2000s yeah you know a sort of small anarchist bookshop there with its big sort of section of, 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 of zines and so forth and the events that it has on there or something like mayday rooms in fleet street you know in your literal central london those spaces simply would not have existed not because they wouldn't have been allowed to exist actually you know if anything probably the, the price of running something like that was a little bit lower in about 2006 but simply because nobody wanted to do it um you know it was such young people were so depoliticized 
Um, there was so little interest in the kind of links between politics and culture. And, you know, there was actually, uh, you know, a path to make some money through your practice yeah. um, that, 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 that had been laid out by, by those new institutions, which have since been, you know, all but destroyed. Um, so there is kind of like a space for some sort of spontaneous activity, and that's probably the future. And this pains me as a person who's politically deeply statist. You know, I, I, I do believe in the kind of, you know, mass accessibility culture. I do, you know, have that kind of like very, very old school modernist sort of like mass broadcast, mass housing, you know, music for the masses sort of like approach to things. Um, partly because that's where I came into it. Um, so there's a sort of sentimentality towards it because of that. But also it's, on an ethical level, that's, that's, that's what I support. And for something like that, you either need... I mean, in pop music, there was big business, but generally you need a big government behind it that's underwriting it, whether it's the BBC Radiophonic Workshop or whatever it is. You know, you, you have some sort of institution that's, that, 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 that's allowing that to survive. And we're not going to see that for a long time. I mean, you know, the, 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 it, it has over the last 10 years been discussed as a problem and it's the thing we might like back. And, you know, that, that, that's, that, that, that means that it's not, implausible that we'll never see anything like this ever again in human life but we're not going to see it in this country for the next 10 years you know we can bank on deep hostility from the state um and my personal kind of preferred response to this is to kind of look at local states and look at the municipal level and i suspect if we were to ask someone in preston they would give us some very interesting answers to these questions um you know, both that you know that not it's not just a kind of economic development model. What's what's happening there? There's also an element of it which is cultural, and it's you know uh, it, it has sort of a lot of discussion in that city, and a lot of that 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 is at a very very high level. I was being struck like being outside, like God knows, like a phone shop, and just seeing like you know, like basically like a communist discussion group being advertised by the council, like outside like <laughs> Vodafone or whatever, you know. That, uh, so so I, I do have a kind of like feeling that maybe the the, the, the local level will be where that happens, but it'll, it'll either it'll be the local councils or it'll be the anarchos, but we will not see it from arts council or the arts council funded venues, which are basically, you know, on their way to becoming... Yeah pure middle-class leisure spaces and nothing but. Fatima, do you want to um, come in there? We've got a few minutes left. Well, I think Owen's probably right that we look to the local, although I think that meeting of the, again, that that, that depends, and, and that is subject to kind of, within the awful, awful financial constraints and the way that, you know, since 2010, financially central government has tried to kill local government. Um, but, and I think perhaps just to stick to London, just because I, I have a better idea of what's going on here, you know, you can see that in terms of councils, which are, to some extent, you know, they are do there are some councils that are doing their best to try and, you know, have grassroots um, arts activity, they're trying to protect their library services, which, you know, although, you know, I'm afraid, of, you know, a group of anarchists is never going to give me a library system. Um, but so so there is that um 
I think we also just to keep our horizons sort of set on something a bit higher we have to keep keep an eye on the fact that things are not like this in other places in other countries um you know as with housing it doesn't have to be so terrible um I'm slightly cheered up by the fact that the the new German culture minister and the new coalition used to manage a rock band in the early 80s um she, she's a, she's a big green party but it was interesting in that five page you know coalition document there's a real emphasis on live venues on on the small on the small scale you know i bet you know um this country has been terrible at trying to at giving money to artists you know as as owen said it's always been you know if we can link it to property development and link, link it to an institution if we can measure it you know the, the informal cultural subsidy that i mean i think it's slightly over romanticized of the doll um it doesn't exist anymore it doesn't it, it, it doesn't you know um, but some linking between what we can do locally and what we can do internationally, and I think we have to give up on the national for, co for quite a while. Um, just to go back to the uh, remembering, not and also just remembering things have been otherwise, not necessarily better, but different. Yeah. Um, my first, just a you know, dismal realm of personal anecdote, my first visit to the Royal Festival Hall was, you know, um, I have a, a wonderful school choir that sang there. That's the first time I went there. That you know, that that's a world that's gone. Mm. Okay. Well, sadly, we didn't have time for me to solve all of these problems as uh, advertised earlier in the show. Um, but I'm sure this will be uh, work that you know, work and ideas that the three of us and many of our other guests on the show over the last four years, and of course, uh, you, the listener, uh, continue to kind of think about and work on. So um, thank you, Owen and Fatima, for joining me one last time on Sweet 212. You're welcome. Uh, thank you. I should say uh, thank you also to Tom Overton and Lara Alonso Corona for hosting episodes of this show in the past. Um, I've been your host, Juliet Jakes, throughout the, uh, the last two series and uh, a lot of the uh, previous two series. Um, Thank you for tuning into the show today and since summer 2017, if you've been listening uh, since then, and um, if you subscribed to us on Patreon, thanks for that as well. Um, thanks also if you've donated to Resonance over the years. Um, we won't be back uh, next month. There may be uh, one-off shows uh, in the future, uh, but our archive will remain online at soundcloud.com slash suite-212. So, um, I hope you continue to enjoy that. All right. Thanks for listening. Take care. Goodbye.